this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, if you've ever listened to an episode of Sminty, you probably already know that representation is kind of our thing. In our episodes on Lisa Simpson, we've already talked about the ways that representation is super, super important. It's not just about what TV shows you like or what movies you like. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And so if a generation of women and girls aren't seeing themselves reflected on screen, it's a problem. Now, I talk a ton about inclusion in media, but oftentimes those conversations can fall along the spectrum of black and white. And I'm definitely guilty of that. But when you look at Asian representation, they're often left out of the conversation altogether. That's why I'm so excited to be joined by today's guest, funny lady Jenny Yang. Jenny is a former labor organizer turned stand-up comedian, writer, and actor. She produces the Disoriented Comedy Tour and the Comedy Comedy Festival. In 2016, President Obama honored her as a White House champion of change for her leadership in Asian American and Pacific Islander art and storytelling. Jenny, thank you so much for being here today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. You're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, we're all amazing. I know, but let's just start with a big affirmation circle. (laughs) I know. I feel like, you know, stuff mom never told you is that we can actually just like compliment ourselves, okay? Totally. That's very real. (laughs) So Jenny, we already know that TV is pretty much hella white and hella male. But when it comes to Asians on screen, it feels like things are pretty f***ing dismal. I was just reading this study from 2017 out of Biola University called Tokens on the Small Screen, and you guessed it, whites pretty much dominate the television landscape. They make up nearly 70% of TV series regular when compared to monoracial Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders who only compromise about 4%. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. You know, I think growing up as as a non-white person in America, you just get used to not seeing yourself um, portrayed in a way that you can honestly relate to. We've been forced to relate to white heroes and white characters. Um, but, you know, it's, so for me to hear the hard facts, not at all surprised. Not at all. Yeah, what was even sort of surprising to me is shows that take place in cities where you would fully expect to find you know, a diverse community of Asians. They Even then, they aren't very diverse. And so shows that are set in places like L.A., New York, even they don't have series regulars who are Asian. And it's like, if you're trying to depict L.A. without Asians, like, what are you doing? <laughs> I know it's, you know, that's the thing. I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in the Los Angeles area. And, you know, to me, the race landscape was... Immigrant, it was Asian American, it was Latinx, it was, uh, black, brown, Pacific Islander even. Um, it was everything. And, and, you know, I think it was a real culture shock for me when I went to the East Coast for college and I, you know, which was a school that's out of Philadelphia. Um, and I was like, wow, Philadelphia, East Coast, why is the sort of racial dynamic so black and white? And it was really strange to me. You know, I, I get it. You know, I, I, I understand, you know, black, blackness and whiteness, you know, is, uh, sort of the fulcrum, I think, upon which our race issues, uh, balance and, 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 and teeter. But, you know, uh, that just as a, as a kid, just trying to come up, it just really was a, it was a culture shock. So when you, during your upbringing, when you didn't really see a lot of other Asians in comedy, did you feel like, you know, was it, was it almost like, oh, are Asians not funny? Is this not supposed to be what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, did it kind of give you the message that Asian women 
did not have a place in the comedy landscape? Yeah, I mean, I feel like, I feel like, you know, if you're a woman, period, it's, it's, it starts so early in terms of how we're socialized and rewarded, right? Like, you know, uh, ever since I was little, and I think most people would agree, if you're a girl, you were taught to laugh along rather than make the joke. You know, you were taught to, uh, support someone else in being the, in, in being funny, but not necessarily be the center of attention making the smart ass remark, you know? And I know that that's changing, but, you know, for me, that's, that's just on our lived experience, much less, you know, what we saw. Like, you know, I grew up in a, in an environment where it was like, I had two much older brothers. So I was really taking their lead. Um, I wanted to be a boy. You know, I was like, you know, not in like a deep way, but like in the like socialized way, right? Where I was just like, dude, boys get to like play sports and like be chill at it and sweaty and they get to, you know, like they get to uh control the remote control. They get to speak with authority because they have lower voices. Like that was the, those are the messages I got, you know, and, and when I watch comedy, it was, oh gosh, all men, except for, I have to say, you know, if we think back, what's really influential is, you know, I saw female comics or comedic personalities in sitcoms, and that was amazing. You know, I loved being able to see, right, uh, girls, uh, star sitcoms, star in sitcoms, or like, even like Lucille Ball, like they would play I Love Lucy nonstop. I'm sure they still play I Love Lucy nonstop. And I was mesmerized by her. So who were some of the other early uh, role models for you as a woman in comedy? Oh, gosh. I think definitely Margaret Cho. Like, I, I remember people telling me I was like Margaret Cho even before I knew who she was when I was a kid, you know, because I honestly was exposed to more like Eddie Murphy, uh, you know, as a stand-up comedian because my brothers were into them. They were like 10 years older and I was like inappropriately watching Raw or something like as a ch- as a I know Raw is like not what a, not what a kid <laughs> no. should be watching. I'm like, why are they throwing their shoe at the kid? You know, like whatever the bits were, you know. And I was like thinking, I was like just a tiny kid. I literally like I also you know got exposed to like music and albums before a lot of kids. You know, when I was like in the second grade or the third grade, you know. So I just had a really strange American upbringing. Honestly, like I don't think I really learned about American pop culture as like mainstream folks know about it until like VH1. I don't even remember VH1 back in the day. They used to have these like, I love the eighties or I love the nineties. Right. <laughs> and I remember watching that just, and just like, just drinking it in. Cause I was like, wow, I don't have parents who listen to the Rolling Stones. I don't know who they are, you know? <laughs> so I just feel like, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I am definitely raised by pop culture. I'm raised by television, you know? Um, when, when I was a kid, my, my family, I, barely before I could even understand, I remember watching Three's Company. Do you remember Three's Company? That is old. I do. Yeah. They were always getting into like sexy jams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> little, little, you know, innuendo misunderstandings. <laughs> right? It was so good. Yeah. And you know, my, I barely, I barely understood, uh, as a little kid. Um, and my parents, their English wasn't that great, but as a whole family, we watched Three's Company fresh, fresh into America, you know? And I, you know, I like the Pratt Falls. 
I like the physical comedy. Um, I didn't appreciate until like maybe a few years ago, I like watched it again on Netflix and I was like, wow, these two women, they're kind of ditzy, but you know, it's so awesome how as an ensemble, you know, they get to be funny together, you know, and I really, I think if I were to look back to think about like what kind of representation of women in comedy, um, it was a lot of sitcoms, but yeah, Asian, completely invisible. I'm, you know, you, let's not even get started on, you know, folks who are indigenous or, or otherwise, you know, but definitely, you know, uh, as an East Asian woman, um, I, I, I didn't see anything. Yeah. So how did you get involved in comedy professionally? Take me through your journey, because a lot of comedians, you got your start as this badass lefty organizer, and now you're a state of comic. <laughs> Take me through this. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know about you, but I, I definitely, I call myself a recovering overachiever, you know, uh, when it, when when I arrived in America at five years old, my parents, my mom was a garment worker, and I saw how hard she worked, blowing her nose, at, you know, onto onto Kleenex and having like fibers from the bad ventilation at the garment factory, and being like, "Why do you work so hard? This seems so hard." And she just said to me, "Jenny, your job in America is to listen to your parents." Uh, listen to your teachers and get straight A's. That's all I ask of you. So you don't have to like do what I'm doing because this is really hard work. And I really took that to heart, honestly, you know, and so I got straight A's. I got into good schools. And, uh, and the thing that I really took to beside being a good student was, you know, naturally being extroverted and having extra energy. And, um, I was a student government nerd. You know, I really took on this idea that like, I'm a, I'm a leader and leadership is important. But what I didn't know is that in high school, leadership didn't mean much because the stakes were so much lower. And it wasn't until college that I realized, oh, leadership is not an end of itself. You know, it's not just for your self-aggrandizement, right? It's like not just about you being the boss. It's a, it's leadership is a set of tools. It's a set of skills for something bigger than you. And that's when I got activated on campus, you know, through through the books, through, uh, you know, honestly, learning through a lot of black female activists, fellow college students who taught me about, um, you know, social justice issues and feminism and what it means to be a woman of color and care about issues of race, gender, class, sexuality, you know. Um, and so I think I, I knew it was a foregone conclusion that I would work in politics. But it wasn't until I would say most of my 20s, like trying to figure out like, wow, I'm like moving up very quickly. Like I was like literally so young, a director at a huge labor union that represented 85,000 public employees. Wow like supervising people over twice my age, you know, and, and I burnt out. I, frankly, I was like, okay, you know, it's nice that I could shop, you know, uh, full price at anthropology and all, <laughs> and, you know, yelp my XX, yelp my excess spending on the weekends, but like, you know, I'm not happy. And I think, uh, during this whole time that I was working in politics, uh, in the labor movement, I was, I kept writing. I've been a writer all my life. I wrote poetry a lot. I performed it. It was in college that I realized, you know, through the near weekend kind of poetry movement on the East Coast that like you can actually, you know, perform your poetic words to build community. And, and I really, you know, took to that. And so I continued doing that back in Los Angeles when I was working here, um, as a young buck. And, uh, you know, I, uh, just decided I had gotten all this feedback. Hey, Jenny, you're funny. And I would just ignore it because I would never claim the label of, of artist. You know, like sometimes we just, you know, we check ourselves out of the game even before we start by just not even claiming the, a label, you know? And so it wasn't until like, I was like, I'm not happy being burnt out, not looking up to the people I'm working for. Um, 
life is too short, YOLO. I need to, I need to just like answer my creative calling and call myself an artist, call myself a writer. And by the way, there's so many times that people have called me Margaret Cho or thought I was really funny. F*** it. I'm just going to try stand-up comedy. And it was like no looking back after that. I love it. Was there a moment for you that crystallized, hey, I'm not happy in this political organizer labor field? Was there a moment or a feeling that you remember thinking, God, this is just not for me? You know, it was really a series of moments that built up into my own little mini artistic come to Jesus moment. I think so much, and I get a lot of people asking me about this because becoming a stand-up comedian is not normal to most people. <laughs> so it's a risk. And, and, um, uh, they're always like, yeah, what, what made you feel like you could take that risk? And I just felt like for me, the gap between how I wanted to live and the happiness and joy I wanted to, to feel became too great compared to my reality. You know, that there was just such a huge gap between, between what I was living and what I wanted, you know, to how I wanted to live. And I think risk and fear is there, but like when I finally felt that that gap was big enough for me to like and worth it enough for me to fight that fear, I, I just had to do it. And so I actually, you know, was like in this fit of fury and, and anxiety and like, oh, I just have to accept it. I need to like pursue my creative you know, desires and, and, and try things, be out of my comfort zone. Um, I called my friend who like runs this amazing multidisciplinary arts space. That's like 20 years running in Los Angeles called a uh, Tuesday night project where I, I is like a sort of a home space for me to perform poetry. Her name is Tracy Kato Kiriyama, amazing mentor and friend of mine. I called her up at like 1130 at night on a weeknight. And I just said, Tracy, what are you doing? She's like, I'm getting boba. And I was like, Tracy. <laughs> I was like, Tracy. And I knew Tracy's a poet and she's writes and she like kept like long late night hours. Like she'll just slam double, double espressos at like midnight, you know, and write. So I, I said, Tracy, can I just, can I be there in 25 minutes? And I, I need to talk to you. I, I can't explain, but I'm just, I'm, I'm having a hard time, you know? So I'm tearful driving down the 110 freeway down through downtown to Gardena where she lives. Can I just pause? This is such an L.A. story. I know, right? I'm sorry. I, if, and if I'm going long, feel free to edit this out. But. No, no, I I love it. I love it so much. But it's like the boba, the 110. I'm like, this is so L.A. Yeah. So, in a good way, in a very good way, good. in a very good way. So I go down there and I, I open the door and without saying a word, I just cry. I just start crying. I'm just weeping. And she just gives me a hug. She doesn't even ask me what's wrong. She just gives me a hug and she just holds me <laughs> like the fairy god sister of art artistry and creativity that she is. And I just said, Tracy, I can't deny that I have to live differently. I have to accept that like I have to answer some creative calling or at least take my creativity seriously. And it sounds for me to say this, even hearing back me saying this, it, it makes it sound like I'm like full of it in a way, but it's not because I think so many times, like there's like all these feelings that we have inside us of like, Oh, I know I'd love to do that, but we just don't take it seriously. You know what I mean? Like we just dismiss it outright. And I just, I hate that. I hated that. I, and, and it got to the point where I just couldn't deny that anymore. And I just didn't want to live like that. That's so real. And I think it connects back to what you were just saying about how, you know, who gets to call themselves a comedian or a creative, yes. right? And that, that struggle where you, I think it, like we train ourselves that any kind of internal inclination that we have toward being a creative or someone who's an artist, we have to suppress that because 
you need to get a good job and blah, blah, blah. And that when you just let yourself accept that, it, it's kind of, it sounds so hokey, but there's a, there's a scary power in that of, I am going to say, f*** it. People tell me that I'm funny like Margaret Cho. F*** it. I'm a comedian. Yeah. Totally. It's almost like this, like, this high you get where you're like, you know, you were pushing against all this resistance and finally, right, that boulder just tips over and you're like, oh, the path is clear, but you're not, it's, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost like, I can't believe it. I've been pushing against this and resisting so long. And now I, I'm letting myself have this path open to me. And I guess one, you know, one step at a time, I'm going to do an open mic. You know, and that's what it turned into for me. Um, and it was not like I was hilarious off the bat, you know, but, you know, cause being on, you know, funny on command in the sort of context of a stage and a lights and the microphone is very different. But, you know, and I'm not saving the world here, but man, for me, for my personal journey, it, it it's, I, I cannot imagine my life being any different. And yet none of what I'm living right now is what I imagined. <laughs> Yes. Well, you say you're not saving the world, but I happen to know that, like, I almost wonder if your background as an organizer and a lefty, because your comedy, your comedy is very political. It's about race. It's about gender. It's about culture. It's about politics. And I almost wonder if you've taken that background with you. It's just a different platform. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I, you know, that's why when people like to label me as activist, I actually don't like to use the word activist, sort of speaking of owning labels. If you give it to me, sure, but I don't call myself an activist because I believe we all can be activists. And sometimes we have these labels and it makes us feel like, oh, Jenny's this type of person. She calls herself an activist and I'm not exactly like her. So I can't call myself an activist, too, you know. Um, and so that's why I tend to sort of not claim that label myself. But um in terms of like, yeah, like I bring my whole self to my voice, you know, and that's really the reason why I'm in this game. You know, what I, when I worked in politics, I was representing 85,000 members. Everything I said in my, you know, uh, shoulder padded suit, <laughs> slightly shoulder padded suit back in the day, um, I, I was accountable for, you know, I had to represent them. And now, um, I am so blessed that I can just, represent myself. And my job is to engage in introspection, is to take in the world and process it through my filter and try to regurgitate it back in a funny way or in a way that, you know, communicates. And um, I love doing that. And, and, and so, yeah. And so, yeah, exactly. The, per the person I've been, every, everything I've done up to this point is a part of who I am when I step on stage. I love that. That's so real because you you don't compartmentalize who you are. You can't, right? Like you're all these different things. You're the labor person. You're the funny lady. You're the, you know, children of your parents. Like you're all these things and they all sort of, it's like the, the tapestry that makes you you that just comes to life on stage. Yeah, I, I I like to think I'm a tapestry. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, you can use that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'll be honest though. You know, um, people have asked me, "Have you talked about the labor movement in your on stage?" And I, and I say yes sometimes, but honestly, I have not gotten deep into it because you know, even though I don't work in that movement directly anymore, I'm not employed by them. You know, I still believe in the principles, and as much as there are problems in the labor movement, sometimes I don't feel like. Um, I want to use my platform to put them on blast. You know what I mean? Um, in a public way. I think there's a time and place sometimes for that, for that. Um, and so we'll see, you know, 
but but that's that's also another aspect of like what it means to bring your whole self you know i i do consider like we wear these multiple identities and sometimes there's you know a public conversation and there's private conversations there's mixed company and there's not and for me i think you know talking about the labor movement i haven't gone to a place where i could kind of talk about <laughs> talk about that quite yet let's take a quick break And we're back. So I want to switch gears quickly. So you wrote this amazing piece in L. If folks haven't read it, definitely check it out. We'll link to it in the show notes. It's called, I'm an Asian American stand-up comedian. What if I could just be a stand-up comedian? And the piece is amazing. Basically, it's for this series that L is doing on female anger and the different ways that it comes out. And so you start your piece with this very, very powerful memory where you're talking about being in an open mic with fellow comics who are just starting out. And this guy gets on stage and makes this really gross, racist joke. Is this a situation that you found yourself in pretty often? Yeah, I mean, this guy literally looked into my eyes as the only woman in the room of stand-up comics at this open mic, the only Asian in the room, and then while locking eyes with me said, I dated an Asian girl once and proceeded to tell a joke. That's probably the most direct and confrontational type of example of uh, of a comedy club scenario that I've encountered. But everything else is sort of a shade or a variation of that. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think if, if I were to string together all of the microaggressions and the little incidents and, and the ex, and the sort of more aggressive experiences I've had, um, it's not pleasant at all. On, you know, I'm still here and I'm still standing and I'm still standing up. So that's good. And, and it didn't sort of push me out, right? The sort of, uh, accumulation, accumulation of all of these experiences didn't push me out. But yeah, definitely. You know, as I said in the essay, a big part of when you start out is you just feel more vulnerable. And sometimes if you don't have the right support, if you don't have the right resources, you know, whether that's in people or it's just making a living so that you have the time to go and work on your jokes and go on stage because that's where you learn. It's, it, it can feel overwhelming to have also these additional right? Hostile pressures when you're just trying to be funny, you know, you're just trying to make people laugh. It's supposed to be something that's joyful. Um, but yeah, but sometimes when you're starting out, you feel more vulnerable. And so those types of incidents can actually cause, like cause folks to leave and not continue to pursue stand-up comedy. That's so real. And I think that you highlight something that I, I, I often find myself frustrated with, you know, a lot of people will say, like, oh, it's a meritocracy, like a white guy and a woman of color, we're all starting at the same place. When you're someone in comedy, doing stand-up comedy is not easy for anybody. It's really scary and really challenging. But when you're a woman or a person of color or a woman of color, you have this added extra layer that white comics just aren't dealing with. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's an added extra layer of what happens to you, how you're perceived in the room. And that's one layer. But the other layer is also just the ground that we stand on. You know, um, I, I, I've been able to move forward in my career because I come from a middle class level of privilege in my background. You know, I was able to have a full time job and have savings in order to like set myself up so that I can weather any kind of like lack of income stream while I transition into pursuing entertainment and comedy. You know, and I think what's really hard is that sometimes for women, sometimes for women of color, we don't have that same kind of systemic 
privilege or class background that allows us to, you know, have the time and, and resources to get good. And, and that's what needs to happen to get good. You know, you gotta like have that time. And so, um, I think that's another kind of layer that, that gets added onto us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So back to this story that you start your L piece with. So you are really faced with whether or not you're going to call out this guy for his racist and frankly, like not even funny joke, or if you're just going to, you know, deal with it. So you write, I had to make a choice. Did I heckle a fellow comedian? Open mic shows are supposed to be, quote, free speech zones, an atmosphere where comics can test out raw ideas. If I got upset, I risked showing that I didn't have thick enough skin to hang. But I spent my first career as a political organizer, standing up for the underdog, a professional injustice confronter. Was I going to stop now? And Jenny, what did you do? (laughs) I split the difference. I uttered a very sort of defined and short boo, like boo. (laughs) (laughs) And then like visibly shook my head. But no one really registered that in the room. You know, he just kept going. Because everyone was laughing at the joke. All the dudes were laughing at the joke. Yeah. And so I just can't imagine what it must feel like to find yourself in these situations all the time. And they often say that with microaggressions, it's like, um, what's the expression? It's like a death by a thousand cuts where it's not one thing. It's just little things that all add up where you deal with it day after day after day after day. When you wake up one day and realize, I don't even feel like a person anymore. I don't even feel like I can pursue this thing I love anymore because it's just too much. I feel like I'm up against too much. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh it wears you down. You know, I think in any situation where you feel like there's a mismatch between who you are and who you want to be versus the culture that you live in. You know, I think that's that, that will always wear you down because, you know, the, the set of values that people are laughing at and that they're praising in the comedy club setting doesn't match with our values sometimes. And so that's why the, honestly, the only way that I could have survived this long and to be able to eventually make a living doing what I do is I had to create my own space. I just had to. It, it was, it was like, I can't, I can't live like this. Um, just ignoring, um, I have a thick skin, trust me, but I, I, I at the time, definitely, I was like, I, I can't, this will not be sustainable. I will need to create my own spaces. Well, speaking of that, something that I really loved about the story you told earlier about your friend Tracy was sort of one creator of color welcoming in another and sort of ushering them, showing them the way, you know, and you've really spent a lot of your career building spaces where other women, folks of color, can have platforms. And that's something I really respect. And obviously, the White House also respects it because you're an (laughs) Obama administration champion of change for that very work. Thank you. Why did you take that on? Like, why is it important for you to lift up others as you climb? You know, we talked about how I bring all of myself to this work. And, you know, being a stand-up comedian can seem like a very solo effort. Honestly, you could just go to the shows, work on your jokes, and you can be pretty solitary. And there's a lot of stand-up comics that really love stand-up comedy because of that. But, you know, I spent most of my life as an organizer, as someone who, you know, learned about building community and learned about how building community is essential to our survival, you know? And so I bring those skills in that mentality to what I'm doing now. And so to me, it only made sense that if I were to create a space for myself, that it's not only for myself, but, you know, those that I might represent or those that might relate to me. And so that's why when we created Disoriented Comedy, uh, we were like, let's make this the first ever mostly female Asian American stand-up comedy tour because most people never saw that. 
And in fact, I had never seen that. And I remember the first time we put together a show, uh, it was so emotional for us because we're like, wow, look at these really funny, uh, you know, folks who like identify as Asian American and, and women and who just like are able to share the like variety of their lived experience and be so hilarious. Like I, it was so magical. And, and so, you know, I, I don't know how to be other than that. And sometimes I do have to find a balance between, you know, putting time into my own craft and my own work and writing versus the more external energy of producing, right. Of producing platforms, of producing shows. Um, but yeah, I don't think I could ever f- stop doing that because, um, that's how I get my strength too and motivation to go on. You know, that's how I get inspired to keep going every day when you're just like, dude, I mean, I trust me, I'm super lucky. I, I get to have so much fun doing what I do, but there is a, a lot of work into it, you know, that goes into it. And so, um, and lots of rejection. And so, uh, to weather that it really is this community that we've really created a network of hilarious, up and coming as well as veteran Asian American comedic talent that like, I really feel like I'm a part of something. And I don't know if, uh, you know, mainstream America or mainstream media has seen that quite yet, that we're a part of an Asian American comedic movement. That's beautiful. But like you write on your piece, that's as, as powerful and beautiful as that is. And I'm so glad that you're there doing that work and building those spaces because God, they are important. But also just like what you were saying that I hadn't even considered. What would it be like if you didn't have to take this responsibility on? Because honestly, you are fighting back against a system that you didn't create, right? Like you didn't create white supremacy. <laughs> you didn't create this system that says that people of color, you know, should should be like this and that the people that we see being funny on TV are white and male. But here you are shouldering the responsibility to sort of re- make people rethink that. You know, when the world doesn't see you for who you know you are, we have to create our own institutions, um, unfortunately, that in a way is like an added diversity tax on us. <laughs> you know, I actually don't really love the word diversity, but that's been the, the term that we've been using um, to to sort of talk about these ideas of representation. And yeah, in a way, you know, when when I have to, it's almost like they say, you know, um, there's this analogy people like to use about sometimes you have to build the bicycle while you're riding it. Right. And that's what that's we say that a lot. <laughs> yeah. You you have to do that when you're not when you're someone that isn't a part of the dominant ruling culture. You know, like we have to build our own paths. We have to build our own vehicles uh while we're trying to do the dang thing, you know? So um yeah, I mean I feel like I feel like I wish I didn't have to d- produce, honestly. I wish that there were like spaces that already recognize that, you know, I'm a normalized story that, you know. I'm cool with it. And, 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 and yeah, like I've definitely, um, have access to more sort of quote unquote mainstream spaces now that I'm, I'm deeper into my, my standup. But like, you know, that's, it's just closes off so many other people that, that could be moving forward in developing as artists or creators or comedians. Let's take a quick break. And we're back. So what do you think needs to be done to make comedy more inclusive and less of less of an industry where you just see one or two stories reflected? What can be done? Well, I think it's about um, every single one of you listening right now who shares in these values. Um, 
showing up in person and with your pocketbooks uh, to creators of color, female creators, all those people that aren't typically represented on mainstream stages, showing up to their shows, whether they're big time Mindy Kaling or if they're just, you know, developing and starting out. We need people to support us as we develop throughout the pipeline, if that makes any sense. People don't just show up and turn into Lena Waithe. You know what I mean? People don't just show up and turn into Mindy Kaling, ready to like write their own sitcom. You know, uh, we need support and resources and audience to come along with us, you know? And so the way people showed up for Black Panther, yeah, guess what? Let's make that a thing even more so, not just for a huge Marvel Universe movie. You know, let's do it for the open mics. Let's do it for, you know, the smaller shows that could be possibly just as great, you know? Absolutely. What are some content creators or shows or projects or movies that you know about that folks should check out? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think I think supporting your local comedy scene and seeking out the ones who specifically like to make sure they book uh, women, queer folks, and diversity in other ways, right? Make sure you show up and just like adopt those shows as like your show to support. I think supporting local comedy scenes in the city that you're at, you can find it. Google is your friend. So, you know, and, and once you get in there, it's a small community and you'll, you'll get to know everyone and it's like super fun. Um, I think in terms of bigger projects, I'm really excited about, um, you know, honestly stuff that y'all may not have heard about. Like I have, I'm because of this sort of comedy festival and tour that I've been organizing since 2012, um, I'm connected to this amazing Asian American and people of color creative community. And we are all independently producing our own shows, whether it's a live show or if it's, um, you know, a television pilot or films and features. And I, I don't think y'all are ready. Like we are making our own sh- you know, a friend of mine, uh, Naomi Ko, she actually, it was just announced that she will be premiering her self-independently produced television pilot um, at the Tribeca Film Festival in their pilot episodic category. You know, like we're like literally if the systems and, and the industry are not ready for us, we're going to make them ready. We're going to, you know, we're not waiting for them. We're doing things on our own. And honestly, nowadays, there is no excuse for us not to because of technology. Um, and so, you know, that's what I'm excited about is like, you know, if you want to scope out Oscar film festivals or other types of like festivals, that's where independent creators, your next Lena Waithes are going to be there. You know, uh, there's so many digital platforms. I love, I love, you know, keeping an eye on what Heyun Park is doing. She's out of New York. She's been directing uh, different series and has been hired to be directors for a uh, Refinery29 production that's coming on. You know, Andrew Ahn, he's amazing. He uh, won the John Cassavetes Director Award last year at the Independent uh, Spirit Awards. And um, he, he's directing Naomi's uh, pilot. Yeah, it's hard. Whenever people ask me for examples. I mean, there's so many. That's the thing. It's like... For so long, I've heard that same old tired pipeline line of, oh, um, there's just not enough, you know, funny Asian women or funny black yes. women. And it's like, bullshit. People are out there. You're not looking. Yeah. 
you're not looking and now you have no excuse because we have way more platforms and way more ways to get the word out. And so if you're not looking, then you're not hearing us, you know, you're not we're because we're talking, we're, we're putting our stuff out there. Absolutely. So let's say that someone out there is listening and they're thinking, gee, I hate my day job. I've always felt called to be a creative. <laughs> what is your advice for that person? Oh my gosh. Um, if someone's like, gee, I hate my day job. I mean, here's the thing. Um, I want a world where, you know, we could all live up to our highest potential, you know? And I think it's such a personal process for us to figure out what that is. Um, but I do know for a fact that um, I'm just going to speak on behalf of East Asians. I'm from Taiwan, you know, Chinese, that for too long, we have not recognized that we can sometimes veer away from the kind of expectations our our parents have of us, you know, to sort of walk this very stable, predictable path. Um, if I had it my way, I would have a an American economy and a social support system where not all of us need to like be freelance and not have health insurance or struggle to kind of take care of ourselves in basic ways. <laughs> oh, I could talk all day, but I don't want to get fired. So let's just yeah. say I agree. Yeah, 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 totally. I think, I think that's what's challenging. It's like, you know, sometimes we need more support for, um, folks who are writers, creators, um, to really shift culture and, and, you know, that's so much of like when we complain about people not understanding us, having so much division in this country, I have to say the solution in the end is not logic a lot of times. It's storytelling. It's culture, you know. Um, and so I think we have a task to like step up. And if you're not happy, then, you know, consider this your sort of like call to arms, like how do you, how do you like look inside yourself? You know, like how do you get yourself right? How do you make sure that like in the end you can live with yourself? You know, that's so real. Jenny, you are such an inspiration. I'm so, so glad you were able to join us today. I think somebody out there is going to be driving their car to work right now and be like, yo, today is the day. I'm going to quit. I'm moving to Hollywood. I'm moving to New York. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do my thing. And that's what we need. We need. Let me, let's... <laughs> Wait, wait, let's back this up. Hold up, hold up. I'm not telling everyone listening to quit their job right now. You heard it here first. You need to introspect and you need to get right with yourself about what that process is. Because it's not black or white, you know. You, you know, you can be at your day job, right? But still carve out 10 to 15 minutes every day to work on that novel. Like I'm that's what I'm saying though. That's the same, that's the same thing about when people like to throw labels about being an activist. It's not all or nothing. You know what I mean? You don't have to be, you know, Dolores Huerta or Angela Davis in order to call yourself an activist. You know, you don't have to quit your day job and move to Hollywood in order to call yourself a creative. You know, there's so many different ways that we as fully fleshed out blessed human beings can kind of live our lives, you know, and take care of ourselves while nurturing that part of us that we know we need we need to nurture so that, you know, our soul doesn't die a little every day. So it's like, what is, yeah, so what does that look like for you? You know, and by the way, this does not preclude me from, who knows, tomorrow I get myself a nine to five jibby job, okay? <laughs> 
because something happened and I just need it. So that doesn't preclude me from doing that. So don't let me be your inspiration. You know what I mean? Honestly, that's why I do the work that I do and like connect with others because they, they're the ones that inspire me. You'll be surprised how many people in your life can inspire you to move forward. Mm, that is so real. Jenny, where can folks find out more about what you're up to? Yes. Um, all the time I'm online. Come talk with me, play with me. Uh, all of my socials, uh, use the handle at Jenny Yang TV on Twitter. That's J E N N Y Y A N G TV, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And then, uh, my website is Jenny Yang TV. I have so many things coming up, videos that I'm going to put out, um, as well as, uh, later this year, the comedy comedy festival, colon, a comedy festival here in Los Angeles will be happening. <laughs> In, uh, in, good name. yes, in, thank you, in October. So if you're going to come out here in October, come and visit me, stay in touch. We're going to have a huge festival of Asian American comedic talent. I love it. Jenny, thank you so much for being here with us today. Bridget, you're amazing. Once again, full circle. Can I, can I just yes, say? Yes, affirmation circle. Yes, you're holding it down, putting out, you know, two podcasts a week. What are you doing? Look at this. This is amazing. <laughs> Telling us about ourselves, you know? I try. I try. (laughs) Well, I hope that Jenny inspired you to get creative in your everyday life. If you're not quite ready to quit your 9 to 5 and buy a one-way ticket to Hollywood, how are you staying creative in your everyday life? Let us know. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast, on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou, and as always, we love those emails at MomStuff at (laughs) HowStuffWorks.com. 